Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Robert Mokri of Light Parts. He co-founded Light Parts in 2004. He's currently the CFO. He has an awesome background in electronics, sales, marketing, product development, and he's also a musician. And he makes spare parts for fixtures that manufacturers no longer support, among many other things at Light Parts. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. What is this musician thing? Uh, I, you know, my mother was the church organist, and I, you know, we were just kind of expected to develop that skill, though I liked it, and I started playing. We had a little chord organ at home and started playing that when I was probably six. And then, you know, got interested in guitars about, around the age of 10. About the time I started getting interested in girls, I was a terrible athlete, had no skill, but I did notice that girls checked out musicians. So I was probably equally motivated to play and and, uh, to be in a band. So I got an electric guitar, I think, when I was about 12 and real quickly started like playing out. You know, and and uh, and was in bands. Like my first band was was pretty cool. Uh, the the other guitar player's dad was in a very successful band in Austin called the Los Gonzo Band, who played with Jerry Jeff Walker. Awesome. So yeah, we were like immediately they would like let us come out to you know the gigs like Soap Creek Saloon and play three or four songs. You know, they'd let the kids go, band go on and play before they did. And you know, we we played some pretty big shows. It was pretty intimidating in hindsight. I found that a vast majority of people in this business either come to it from playing music or they were in with theater in high school or college or their folks were in the business. I mean, for me, in my experience, that counts for about 90% of the people I've run into doing this. That's, that's you know? fair, yeah. You know, so I came to it from the musical side. My dad was a telephone man and taught me about how to solder and AC and DC circuits and, you know, just basic electronic stuff. And I was always kind of the guy that could make the PA work and make the lights work, you know? Okay. So you got all that really early. Oh, yeah. I, I was like working on my own guitars and stuff when I was 12 or 13. That's pretty cool. I mean, I imagine that it must have helped you as you started to develop your own business. Mm, well, um, I have just enough technical knowledge to be dangerous. That's kind of how I, <laughs> I illustrate it to people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm no real technician like the guys that work here and like my partner, Don. I mean, these are guys who I can swap out boards and swap motors and swap belts and you know, get something work and swap the lamp. But when it comes down to you know troubleshooting a lamp ballast or something, I'd be lost. So, so it's really unfair to technicians to, um, to associate me with them in that way. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm an overeducated salesperson, really. (laughs) All right. Well, Well, tell us about light parts as it is today. Wow. Well, um, light parts turned 12 last Friday. That was our date of incorporation was January 22nd. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, we've survived 12 years in this business, which was really a surprise to both of us. We never saw it uh, becoming what it is. When we started, um, Don and I had been with High End forever and ever, and Don was the expert on telebeams and emulators and you know older products. And they, you know, 10 years after they'd stopped making those, they no longer support them, which is fairly unheard of. I mean, that period of time is normally like two or three years after somebody stops making something that they supported. But back in those days, they had a 10-year window. So that had ended and people kept calling Don for IntelliBeam parts and emulator parts and knowledge and stuff. And so he went to the guys there and said, hey, I think I'd like to you know, like to do this. I'd like a change. I've been doing, you know, working in for somebody for a long time. I'd like to go out on my own. And they, they seemed to think that was a great idea. So Don quit and he bought up all the remaining parts and they, and to Heinz credit, they gave him a great deal on that. And he started this out as Donco. <laughs> I had just finished a development project for Wybron. I had developed a tungsten color mixing lighting product called Nexera. I don't know Nexera. Oh, well, basically, from the time that I was uh, selling lights at high end forever and ever and ever, starting in the days of Color Pro back in the 80s, people kept saying, why, don't, why doesn't somebody make a Source 4 with color mixing? Why doesn't somebody make a standard theatrical ellipsoidal that's convection-cooled and conventional that has color mixing? 
And so it really wasn't an original idea, but I'd had hundreds of people ask me that for over the years. And so I was at a point where I was unemployed and thought, well, you know, I'm going to pursue this. And so I started figuring out how to do it and came up with a method for doing it and licensed that to Wybron. And they hired me for six months to finish the product off. And we showed it at Plaza and LDI and... And basically, my work with them was done. You know, the product was shipping. So I went home and was sitting around the house waiting for my royalty checks to come rolling in. And it hadn't really occurred to me that, gee, they got to get out and get these specified and sold. So I was kind of sitting around, again, unemployed. And so I heard Don had started this lighting parts thing. And and I went over to visit. And uh, he's working on something. And uh, the phone rang. And I picked it up and answered it. And it was, of course, somebody we knew. And um, sold them a bunch of stuff. And I just kind of just, it really just <laughs> fell into it. You know, uh, Don, we were talking the other day, Don was really more of the um, a risk taker. You know, he walked away from a comfortable living at high end uh, to, to, to really stake out this part of the ind- industry. And um, I was just a desperate unemployed guy with nothing to do. So, uh, so that's how I ended up at Light Parts. And I mean, from the early days when we were working at high end selling in telebeams, you know, there were always people who could get the lights on shows and, and program them. You know, that was a bit of a challenge. We had to teach people about how to, you know, program automated lights and they could sell them, you know, in the installs and stuff. But when it came to servicing them, it was always a challenge, you know, because they were brand new. I mean, you know, you'd hand this thing to a guy that had been working on dimmers all his life, and it's like got all these motors and sensors, and, you know, it was just, things are so much different now. You know, automated lighting technology is so ubiquitous, but back in the early 90s, there were golden scans, Claypacky golden scans, and Comar robots, and high-end Intellibeams, and the very light stuff, and yeah, that was it. I feel like people hadn't had a chance yet to sort of figure out what the best practices for manufacturing were. You know, it was still kind of like, well, we don't know yet. We're, we're learning how to build these things still. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're learning everything. What's the best way to build them? What's the best way to package them? What's the best way to power them? What's the best way to sell them? What's the best way to program them? You know, all that stuff. I mean, it was the Wild West. I mean, you got to realize that before 1990, the only people that really provided automated lights in America was very light. I mean, there was Morpheus. You know, they had a few accounts. um, But really, very light dominated this business. And not the very light that there is today that's owned by Philips. It's it's twice removed from the very light that grew out of Shoko. I'm talking about yeah. the, the original stuff. It was all proprietary and they didn't sell it. They only rented it. And if you wanted automated lights, you know, that's that's what you did, right? So and other people had popped up and tried to make automated lights. There was a company called Summa Technologies, a guy named Stephen Harper, a real bright guy, had a low-powered laser system that was somewhat successful. And he attempted uh, to make an automated light called Summa Spot, and very light kind of sued him out of existence. Basically, their business strategy was to uh, file a patent infringement suit on any competitor that popped up. And most of them were so small, it just they couldn't sustain it. You know, they just yeah. went out of business. High End was, uh, and they tried that with High End too, over Studio Color. And, but High End by that time had grown big enough to where they had enough resource and will to, to battle it. And so yeah. it could really be said, and of course I'm probably going to be called a super High End flag waver at this point, but it's historically accurate that we wouldn't have automated lights the way we do today, at least in America and ultimately worldwide, uh, had a high end not kind of taken on that battle and opened up the, you know, the business for that, which that uh, patent infringement suit ended up settling. You know, nobody really won a loss. I think uh, it was some type of uh, co-licensing agreement. And Yeah, as, as I understand it. Yeah, the only one, only people that won on that were really the attorneys. There were there was a whole, oh my it, god, oh to to the tune of millions and millions of dollars, and that didn't count all the time both companies put into it, right? Where we could have been building stuff or selling stuff, or you know. But to get back to you know how we started, uh, it was just in telebeam and emulator and that kind of stuff, and uh, there was always a need. 
it was it was clear in the first month we did this that there was a need for what we did and you know something in hindsight when we did it was also really cool uh 2004 um 9-11 had just happened the stock market crash had happened and times were tough right and people didn't want to go buy brand new stuff everybody was super tight and wanted to fix what they had and and save money and that really worked in our favor yeah that makes sense yeah right exactly you know people wanted to fix what they had and you know the next thing you know it was like well can you get me a studio uh 575 lamp ballast can you get me a touch screen for a hog too can you get me this can you get me that and it grew into what we've got today, which is 12 people, and we have a 6,700-square-foot building that we bought about nine years ago. Well, we're paying on it. We don't own it yet, but we're almost there, actually. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So um, we've, had, we've had a lot of great lucky breaks, and we made it look easy. It seems like timing-wise that you know that was a really good time because you'd already had Studio Color and Studio Spot on the market for a couple of years. You know, so you had these fixtures that were floating out there in the world, all of which didn't really have a replacement yet, and all of which were going to need parts. Actually, you know, that's a funny thing. A lot of people, we get that from a lot of people that, oh, you know, the, you must make a lot of money off the manufacturer's design errors, you know, or build errors. And I say, yeah, occasionally, you know, they'll make a mistake and we'll have to come up with solutions to deal with it. But as time has passed, that's pretty rare. You know, compared to the early 90s, like we talked about, where people yeah, were figuring absolutely. it out, it's so evolved now that um, I had a conversation with a customer at LDI where they were doing a giant retrofit, you know, a half million dollar retrofit. And, and we get that question that car mechanics get. What's the best light? Which light breaks the least? You know, what holds up the best? And, and my answer to her was, they're all pretty good now. I mean, really. Yeah, it's pretty shocking when someone really screws up now. Here's a big good secret to know in product development. If you really want to have a successful product, figure out something that your customers need before they know they need it. Studio Color is a perfect example, okay? Studio Color started out, we assumed because of VL5 that it had to have a tungsten lamp. And there was also light and sound design, you know, LSD, which ended up being bought by PRG and becoming part of that company. But they had the Icon system, which was a, a great product and a wonderful console. And so their wash light was tungsten. So when we went to develop uh, Studio Color, which was actually at first called Technicolor, which is a little known fact. The, the techno name came back big time. Yeah, later. Richard Richard always liked that. He's techno everything, man. If you hung around with that guy for 10 minutes, he, he's he got a techno wallet, you know, or, <laughs> or keychain. I mean, that's just, that. This Richard is techno in and of itself. But um, we're working on this light. Uh, it's got a tungsten lamp, and we're having massive heat issues, just like everybody does with big old, you know, tungsten lamps. And one day... We had just received this sample of a single-ended 575-watt metal halide, and somebody literally stuck it inside the reflector, hanging off of a lamp socket and some lamp leads. And we looked at it and went, holy crap, that's three times as bright and has one-third of the heat. Now, nobody up to that point had come to high end or, and said, hey, you know, we really need a metal halide-based wash light. We need that bad. You need to make that for us, okay? We just, it was kind of, you know, the mother of invention, you know, and, and, we, and yeah. we put it in there, and people saw it and went, wow, that's really awesome. I mean, look at those blues, you know? I mean, it, yeah, yeah. you know, it was, uh, and it had so much less heat and so much more output and, you know, really changed wash lights. I mean, before that, there were really no metal halide wash lights. And then, of course, Max 600 and, and all these other things came after it. So, I mean, there's a lot of examples where, you know, I think some of the most successful products in all kinds of, of uh, categories are ones where, you know, somebody was really forward thinking. You know, that's how a lot of stuff happens. Vendors come and bring you their new sample. That's how development and automated lighting business works, you see. The lamp, it's always driven by lamp manufacturers. Lamp manufacturers come up with this, ooh, look at this cool high-pressure, compact uh, platinum lamp we just came out with. See, it has a really small arc gap and super high output, so you can make these real narrow optics. And poof, what do you get out of that? A Sharpie, okay? Uh, VL6 was developed because Philips brought them uh, the uh, MSR400 short arc. 
That allowed them to make a tiny optical system, make a very compact light with good, still had good output, ton of patterns, ton of colors. It's really an automated lighting. It's always been lamp developments. It's usually kind of a confluence of the technologies that are available and somebody knowing how to apply it. So we kind of got off into the history and development of automated lighting. So That's okay. I love the history and development of automated lighting. Uh, I, I find with, uh, I'm 51, and I've been doing this since 1988, and really the business kind of started in the mid-80s. So I, that was a you know another very fortunate thing for Don and I. We were really in on the ground floor and have got to watch this. You know, It's, it's sort of like being an Apple computer when they right about the time they started making Apple IIEs. It's, it has changed a lot. You know, and we always knew it was going to evolve. And, and then, you know, now there's hundreds of manufacturers worldwide when I can remember, you know, when you could count them on two hands worldwide. And like I said, everybody's really gotten a whole lot better at it. In fact, I've told Richard Bellevue, I've told a bunch of people who developed this stuff that I don't ever remember it being harder than it is now. Because if you hired me today as a consultant and said, you know, make me an automated light that's totally different than what everybody else has, that'd be a real hard thing to do, you know, because it, the whole state of the art is so evolved. We're, we're running out of bits to put inside an optical path to create effects, right? I mean, you know, there's only so many textured pieces of glass or apertures or prisms or stacked patterns or frost glass or, you know, whatever the conventional means have been to create effects with automated lights were uh, all the manufacturers are running up against the wall, you know, and which leads us back to service in a way. I I'm starting to think that, you know, in other words, you know, there was a time when you went, Oh, I have to have light X because it has color mixing or I have to have light X because it has rotating patterns. Well, they all have color mixing and rotating patterns, right? Yeah, yeah. So now what differentiates it? Well, output, service. How well is it going to be taken care of after the sale? You know, because if you're in the business of owning these or, or owning them to rent or owning them in your venue or whatever, you know, they are complex devices. Okay. I mean, automated lights are really unique in that they have mechanics optics and electronics and then you've got this giant radiation source sitting all in the middle of it, right and and software okay so finding somebody who can really understand all of those things can be a challenge and typically that's a pretty talented person that could be out working on you know color copiers I mean, if you try to think of another technology that's around that has all that stuff in it color copiers pop up optics they have a lamp they have electronics. They have mechanics. That's fair. So, yeah, I see service. And you know something? That's true for production companies, too. There was a time when, if you wanted production, this company had certain lights and certain trusts and certain dimming and certain, you know, they had their package, you know, and you either went with Shoko and very lights or you went with LSD and icons or you went with Morpheus and. Uh, Pana spots, or you went with you know somebody else, and they may have IntelliBeams or Golden Scans or you know whatever, along with all the other stuff they've got. Now, if a guy let's say had ten million bucks and was in the lottery, he could go buy the same stuff everybody else has, put it in a warehouse, and be in this business. I mean, there was there was really a time that the technology, much like recording studios, incidentally, you know, there was a time when recording studios built all their own consoles and outboard gear and all that stuff. Now everybody kind of has the same stuff. So it's like, how do you differentiate yourself? Well, with the people, with the service that, you know, how how nice are you to deal with? You know, uh, how easy does this stuff go up and down? How is it packaged? And I can think of some people, um, Christy Lights being a great example of how they package their stuff and it's so uniform and they've got all these quality standards and and PRG as well. Upstaging, Bandit, I don't want to leave anybody out. There's a lot of people who have really put a lot of work into how they package and deploy their products. And I'm, and I'm not sure that's because they wanted to. Probably they did because I know all the guys that run those companies and they have a very keen interest in quality. But it's strategically smart. It's how they differentiate themselves. This strategy goes right back to the old very light days. That was their stock and trade. I mean, if you wanted automated lights in North America, you went to VLPS. 
there were really no other options. I mean, that was one of the things that that really, uh, there's no question, aided high-end success early on, was that we had a product you could buy and put on a tour and compete with those guys. I mean, if you if you owned a lighting company anywhere in America, let's say, and you had an artist that, okay, let's say you're upstaging and you have Cheap Trick and you started out with them when they were a bar band putting up a few pars and then their shows got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then they went and saw Michael Jackson and went, wow, what are those lights that move? We got to have some of those. Well, that really created a conundrum for those companies because at that point, they had to take their client to their competitor and go, hey, we need to get some of your stuff. And often, often they would just end up eating those clients. And that happened a lot. And so these people wanted, um, all these production companies wanted the ability to offer that technology to their customers. And from day one, they wanted yoke lights. I mean, they settled for IntelliBeams because it would do the job. Okay. But I mean, it, it, they were all like, these are great. Please make us some yoke lights. Please make us some yoke lights. As, as cool as the mirrored lights were and are. I still think that, that mirror lights have a terrific utility. I, I still scratch my head when I go into discos that have yoked lights. I'm like, why would you put something up and make it go yank, 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 10 or 12 hours a day when you could have a mirror doing that? Well, there, there aren't a whole lot of them. Well, that's just because of popularity. You know, people like that kind of little robot look of the whole thing moving. It doesn't really have so much to do with the lighting effect, I believe. It's not like, oh, well, we have to be able to put patterns over here and over here. They just like those little robots moving around. They look cool. Oh, hmm. You know what I mean? Um, um, If I had a club, it'd be all mirrored lights because they're more reliable. I mean, if you're going to have something moving 10 hours a day, what's going to hold up better, a 5 or 10-pound fixture or a 5-ounce mirror? That's totally fair. Okay, I mean, that's just simple physics. But hey, you know, I have a business that fixes those lights that goes yank, 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 yank 10 hours a day. So <laughs> I probably should shut up at this juncture, huh? Speaking of which, uh, so you, you provide the parts and you also provide the service to repair the fixtures. That's correct. We do a level of repairs that most shops can't afford to have somebody around. I mean, we do the kind of repairs that a manufacturer would do. Everybody that's here... I mean, down to our accounting lady worked for high-end or very light or something like that. So we're doing uh, hot air reflows of processors on PCBs with microscopes and stuff. And there are a couple of shops in America that have the resource to do that. If you're a shop, if you're a Christie Lights or a Bandit or an Upstaging or, or PRG, you can afford to have a very well-paid trained technician with fifty or hundred thousand dollars worth of parts and tools there to sustain your fleet of five thousand automated lights or whatever it is, right? But if you're a guy that's got fifty automated lights and a couple of sound systems and some barricade and some trussing and some staging and some inflatables or whatever, then we're their service department. We're just ideal. So, yeah, we, we do component level repair on circuit boards. We do whole fixtures, obviously. And, and being in Texas, Texas is a big state. I mean, when you look at how many people are here, if you can just capture the repair work in Texas for a company of our size, that can keep you pretty busy. And there's a lot of big churches and schools and so forth here. But it's not cost effective to send the whole fixture from Seattle <laughs> or our Boston to Austin to fix. So uh, we do a lot of ballasts and logic boards and consoles. We do a good amount of consoles, you know, stuff that's just, just outside the realm of a, of a normal technician, something that you would send to the factory. What do you repair on consoles? Because obviously I've sent consoles back to the manufacturer before. I just don't know what they've been doing with them. It could be you know, the front panel won't respond or it's got a display out or won't output DMX. And at that point, you know, you got to have somebody who really understands computers who can, you know, troubleshoot a console and fix it or it got dropped or it got water in it. I mean, we have a guy, a, a, a customer of ours here uh, who goes around and does all these pro rodeos. And the stuff he brings us is so covered on, with dust on the inside, it's, it's, like, it's hard to fathom how dirty some of this stuff gets. And that causes problems. And he just really doesn't have the time or the capability to mess with that. And, and so we end up fixing a lot. And you know, here's another thing that's interesting about light parts. Okay, we're kind of Switzerland. 
Okay. Let's say you are the smaller lighting company in town and there's some great big behemoth uh, across the across the street and they have all the dealerships. I can see some guys not wanting to crawl over there and go, Hey, will you help me fix my console? You know, I see, yeah. and, and, that, and those guys really might not want to help those guys because they're their competitors, you know? So we offer an alternative to them where they can send their stuff off and, and get it fixed and get it back and, I'd like to think we're a little better at it, too. Nothing personal, but, I mean, this is what we do all day. You know, we don't try to be a production company in that way, right? We're very focused on this. Um, we keep about a million dollars worth of parts on hand, okay? Now, not a lot of people can afford to do that. And so I'm fairly confident that if I rebuilt diesel engines uh, – if you had one guy that didn't have any parts sitting there and another guy that had a big pile of parts is sitting there, well, who's going to turn stuff out faster? The guy that can walk into the room and go, oh, here's what I need. Boom, 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 boom. Right? And on a, on a lot of repairs, it, even when the technician's competent, at whatever, wherever it's at, he will they'll bring a, a, con, a console or a fixture with a problem, and he'll go, okay, I think it's this. And he puts this, this stuff in. Okay, well, that takes care of some problems, but shoot. I need a couple more parts. Well, he already had to wait a week to get one round of parts. Now he's got to order some more and wait for them to arrive. Whereas that whole process that I just discussed might take two days at like parts. And when people rent this stuff by the week, even if we are a little more expensive on a, on a circuit board repair or a console or a fixture repair, if we turn it out in you know three or four days as opposed to three or four weeks, and we're typically actually very cost competitive on top of it, then it's a pretty easy choice. But I would say that most of our repair business centers around logic boards and lamp ballasts. I mean, there's really nobody in America that repairs lamp ballasts but us. I mean, there's a few guys who do it on some level, but they a lot like the, the sheeter work lamp ballasts, the German ballasts that are in Martin and Roby gear. Um, they have like proprietary parts and coils and stuff on them, and, and they're real hard to get. And there's a bazillion revisions. And so, you know, we've just spent a bunch of time figuring that out. So you go way down beyond the sub-assemblies. You, you start purchasing the actual bits and pieces of the sub-assemblies that the manufacturers were purchasing when they were building them originally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one element of our business is what we call legacy product support. Basically, products that the manufacturers no longer support because they're way outside the warranty period. They're way outside the manufacturing period. You know, they've stopped making them. Typically, studio color. Okay, we'll pick on studio color. There's a product that hasn't been made in a few years. There's a bazillion of them out there. So, I mean, usually the you know we will strike some agreement with the manufacturer to be the guys who take that over, and because they're in the business of of making new products and supporting them. Come to find out, there's a whole industry of what we do called reverse logistics. And Interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't. We are actually a reverse logistics company that happens to be in the entertainment lighting business. And what re reverse logistics is, is everything that happens after the sale. Warranty repairs, non-warranty repairs, parts sales, refurbishment, uh, resell of, of returned merchandise, like, you know, if they got to repair it and turn around and resell it. And there are companies that do this for people like Philips and Sony and stuff like that. And so they approached me about being in a trade organization, and I didn't even know what it was, you know, being just a... I love that there's a trade organization for that. Yeah, yeah, just being a regular... Because it's one for everything. Right, exactly. So being a regular lighting hippie, I was like, really? You know, and real quick, I want to... Uh, man, it's people that make what we do here. I mean, it's not really technology anymore. Our people are what light parts is. It's not the parts that we have or, or this or that. You know, when you call here, you get somebody that's been doing this 10 years on average. You know, it's not, you know, and God bless. Hey, I started out. I was new one time. You know, I'm not going to pick on the noobs, but it's not some guy that just started doing it six months ago. We have a guy that uh, Danny Baker that fixes consoles that's been fixing hog twos for 15 years. 16 wow. years. I mean, he's just a machine. Now, we don't do too many Hog 2 repairs anymore. He's moved into Hog 3s and the more modern products. But, oh, yeah. You know, we uh, Chris King uh, just had 10 years with us, and he was at high end before that. There's a lot of uh, knowledge here. So how do you deal with products? So you've purchased all of the spare parts for a given fixture. 
When those are exhausted, where do you start turning to? Uh, do you start manufacturing your own? And what are some examples of that? Often these uh, agreements that we'll make, you know, we'll make an agreement to uh, buy out all the existing parts. And part of that agreement will be that we can uh, buy or make more parts as needed. And, if, and so usually we go back to the people that made them originally. They're already tooled up to do it. They've got all the drawings. They know how to do it. And the manufacturers authorize us to do that. That's the way that works. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's not cost effective to do. If you need a, uh, a circuit board, I got some guy that needs two of them, but the manufacturer's minimum is 20 and they cost $1,000 each. At that point, you have to go, well, when am I going to sell those other 18? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, which leads us to another thing. In that situation, okay. um, we part out a lot of fixtures. One thing that I never anticipated with light parts, probably the number one thing, I mean, early on, like I said, in the first month, I knew Don and I were going to make a living doing this. Just by the phone ringing, there was enough demand where I went, you know, he and I, are, we're going to do all right at this. But I'll get these calls and emails of, you know, hey, I have this storeroom full of Martin parts because we used to service all these cruise ships or all these nightclubs or whatever it was, you know, theme park, whatever it is. And we don't do that anymore. And so I've got all these parts. Would you like to buy them? And so we are kind of the home for misfit parts and fixtures that are broken that people don't want to fix. And I get offered those every day, every other day I'll get a list. And they come from manufacturers. Manufacturers will have stuff that's collected in their warehouse. Um, manufacturers listening out there, start sending me your list in like August instead of December. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll get like, about the end of November, beginning of December, we'll get these these lists of, hey, do you want this stuff? Do you want to buy this stuff? They've done inventory. They've looked over stuff that's not moving. They decide they want to get it out, and they're trying to get some value out of it. And sometimes we'll buy it. Sometimes they'll give it to us. You know, it, it, it all just depends on what it's worth to us. But so much stuff finds us. So leading back to that guy that needs that $1,000 board, what we might do is go, hey, I have a nice, clean, refurbished one here for you that we tested, and we'll give you the, a 90-day warranty, same as a new part. Okay. Oh, and it costs half as much as a new one. And so on a lot of stuff that's no longer made anymore, like um, CyberLite logic boards, there are thousands of CyberLites on cruise ships, and people want replacement circuit boards. So we buy old CyberLites and part them out, take the parts we want, sell the rest for scrap metal, test them, clean them up, put them in a static bag, put a warranty on them and sell them. And, and so we sell a lot of refurbished parts in those particular circumstances, you know, where it's not cost effective. Uh, circuit boards are hard. A lot of the manufacturers will have real high minimums that you have to meet for them to tool up and make that stuff. And the other thing then is cost. People sometimes are shocked what some parts cost, but I have to point out to them that, man, hey, I'm buying these in the tens and hundreds, whereas the original manufacturer was buying them in the thousands and ten thousands when they were manufacturing. So all you have to do is go look at what Mauser charges for parts to see what quantity breaks do to pricing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of what really gets you on console maintenance, right? That there's, there's going to be boards that the minimum order was 10,000 originally, and you just can't get 10 of them shot out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you may, you may not, but circuit boards are the hardest. Things like fans and belts and things like that. We Also, let's bear in mind that the two companies in North America that ever made automated lights were both based in Texas. In any numbers, okay? I'm, I'm kind of giving short shrift to Morpheus, and I shouldn't do that because they're really cool guys, and I like them. And I always thought uh, they had great products. Um, and Randy Ray was just on the show. Oh, wow. That's, that's, I, you know, I think I heard a bit of that, man. He's a great guy, man. Uh, and certainly a fixture of the business. Um, so very lights in Dallas and high ends in Austin, right? So not our own, a, a ton of the people that know how to do this are in Texas, but the vendors are right. You, you always want to use vendors that are close to you to keep your freight costs low, right? So there's a bunch of people in Texas, we can buy this stuff from that high end used to buy the stuff from and very light used to buy the stuff from. And so we sell parts new and used. We repair circuit boards and components all the way up to whole fixtures and consoles. Um, we sell used equipment and new equipment as well. 
And, you know, there's really only two ways to expand one's business, and that is either find new customers or find new things to sell to the customers you already got. Right. So, so we are trying to do both. I mean, there's always new companies and people that we need to tell the story to. And we want to move more into selling expendables and lamps and just making, we find our customers really like being able to buy Martin parts and high end parts and very light parts and fog fluid and lamps all in one shot. And it all show up in the same box and, and they just like dealing with us. So we're going to um, expand that more and more. Um, so we have a pretty good audience. I like to call them our audience and we send out a newsletter every month and we really try to communicate with them and, and, and figure out what it is that they need and, and stay relevant, which is a challenge. Okay. With the cheap Chinese uh, products or the lower cost, I shouldn't say cheap because actually a lot of that stuff, um, uh, the Chinese are smart people and they've learned a lot from us and we've taught them a lot uh, via offshore manufacturing about how to make these products. So they're getting better and better. And, you know, nobody's going to, if they have a studio color or spot 250 that needs a $500 repair and they can buy a used one for 400 well, they're not going to do that repair. And, or they can buy a brand new Chinese replacement with an LED engine for $500. Okay. We run into people regularly who buy stuff directly from China, who don't go through any, you know, they're not buying it from Alation or Chauvet or Electrolyte or somebody who's importing those products and rebranding them and selling them. They'll buy them directly from Guangzhou Chai Lighting and bring them over. And, and uh, I had a good customer of ours in California call me the other day, had some Macara knockoffs that you know they had bought before he was there, uh, bought directly. And then six or eight of them, and one of them had a motor that had failed. And I'm like, man, I don't even know where to start with that. Um, yeah. and, and people will carry them in our shops, and we'll go, man, I can't even tell you who made that, much less you know where the parts came from. I was speaking to a technician at a big shop here who, who had a customer bring in six Sharpie knockoffs that said Clay Packy on the side and, and Clay Packy in the display. They had decompiled their operating software, and all of them – had repairs that were greater than their value. And the guy said, what should I do with them? And they said, go throw them in a dumpster and buy some other ones. And so some people are starting to have some experiences like that. And they're starting to realize that, you know, you're really not going to buy a light for a quarter of what the Italian or American or Danish or whatever product is and get the same quality. Okay. Here. Okay. You people come onto this show to hear cool stuff here. Here's some, uh, some info that not a lot of people know. On a bill of materials of automated lights to build them, about 10% of it's labor, okay? We're not shelling shrimp or making garments, okay, where the cost of material is low and the cost of labor is real high, all right? So um, the only way to make an automated light cheaper is to drive down the cost of the materials because the labor component is so small you can't save a lot of money on it offshoring it, okay? And commodities, copper, steel, glass, all that stuff, is, it's a worldwide commodity. You know, the costs are about the same. So, you know, you have, there has to be some compromises in materials, you know, to do those kind of prices. And that's why you're seeing the upper end elation stuff, you know, it's while it's lower cost than let's say maybe very light or some of the upper end stuff, it's not, you know, 10 to one, you know, in, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. the end, you know, ultimately the, the, the vast cost of building an automated light is in parts, not labor. So, so that's always something to, to you know, to bear in mind. Um, you know, this reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask you yes. separately from this, which is, is an obsession with new design trends and shiny and sexy hurting the business? Well, who was I asking? Um, Brian Hartley that does uh, a Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You know, what the hell do you need 110, 12 to 1500 watt automated lights on a Christmas show for? And he said, you see that big LED wash light in the back? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, the video screen, Robert, you know, yeah. you know, that thing, when it comes on in full white, I, all my lights go away, you know? And so what I've seen change in production in my career is used to trim height was 35 or 40 feet. That was a very, very common thing. Right. Um, 
and and so the lights were closer. That's what's driven these higher output devices, you know. But I mean, it's I think it, it makes it harder for the people that are buying and renting the stuff. I mean, you know, uh, to answer your question, video people have been dealing with this for a long time. What it does is it shrinks the amortization time. Whereas, you know, if I'm a rental company and I buy these lights, I'm not going to be able to amortize them over five years. I'm going to have to amortize them over two years. Okay. Now, while the proliferation of free downloadable music has really hurt the recording end of music, it's actually helped uh, live production because artists have got to get out and tour and sell T-shirts to make money. So it's arguably has been good for our end of the business. So I think it simply is. I can't really say whether it's good or not. I think that if anything, we have may have kind of had it really good for a long time. You know, it's like all of a sudden when things are really fat and then they're just like okay and normal and like everybody else. I think our view of it has has been skewed because there was such a time where you could buy an automated light and pay for it in a couple of years and then double and triple and quadruple your money. Well, that's harder to do now. No, no question about it. Uh, but there's more people touring. I don't know if you've noticed, but in my lifetime, I, there's never been more music and art available than there is now. You know, from a service perspective, you know, it's like you have manufacturers trying to push out a new product that essentially replaces the old product 18 months, 24 months after the other product. And it doesn't seem sustainable, really. Because people buy products, you know, they buy lights, they buy consoles, not for 18 to 24 months. They buy them for a longer term than that. They wish they could. Okay. I mean, look at iPhones and, and look at other consumer products. Automobiles, there's a new model every year. I really think that we just got a little spoiled and the, and the rest of the world caught up to us. And again, we tend to look at the magazines and the websites and we see, you know, what Roy Bennett's using on Paul McCartney. All right. Or, or something like that. Well, of course they're either going to use the newest and the latest and greatest because they have the stroke to write a spec and make everybody run out and buy that stuff. Um, especially when things got tight, the influence of the tour accountant grew exponentially. Right. And so you would write a, a writer that says, Hey, I need 32 Vipers. And they come back and go, Hey, you know, I don't have Vipers. I got VL4000s or VL3000s. Can you use those? Oh, yeah. They're 2000 bucks less a week. Mm -hmm. And they, then, they, then they go back to the lighting designer and go, Can you use these lights? Yeah. Yeah. Then that comes back to how much stroke does the lighting designer have? I mean, can he go, Well, yeah, but you know, those aren't going to cut through that giant video screen you wanted to. That's why I put this 1500 watt light on here or whatever it was that they needed. There are a lot of markets that aren't New York or LA or Vegas where, you know, you put something up and I, I, I don't know about you, but I haven't like none of my friends that I talk to who are not in the lighting and sound business come to me and go, Hey, you know, I went and, and saw this show, man. And I'm really bummed out that they didn't have very lights, <laughs> you know, they had Mart these Martin lights or something. That's, you know? that's fair. You know, really the, the ugly fact of the matter is much like with guitars and amps and keyboards and some other technologies, it comes down to the player, you know, the music fan will notice if it looks good. I mean, I've had friends who've said it was amazing. You know, every song looked different. It, you know, it looked fabulous, but that's, but that's, they noticed they didn't notice what it was that was doing it. That's exactly right. You know, uh, Michael Strickland that owns Bandit Lights was telling me a story. He's, you know, talking to some promoter about why he should use this stuff. And he goes, you know, Mike, you're a good guy and stuff, but all this stuff looks the same to me from about 20 rows back, you know? And that's really true, you know? I mean, if you really think about it, we'd all like to think that, oh, everybody's going to notice the fact that I put these special gobos in my light and so on and so forth. But really, they're there to see the artist and imagine that they're the artist and be sucked into the performance. And the fact that whether it's got some feature or not is is often irrelevant, you know? And, and uh, good programming and, like you said, like your friend's comments that that the that the lights really enhanced and 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 helped the performance and made it more exciting. You know, that's that's what it's really about. 
as a guy who sold automated lights and hung around guys who developed these lights and their whole existence, these lights are like their children to them. You know, um, they don't understand why the you know the artists aren't using them to their full potential, and even in some cases, why the lights aren't more noticeable. And I've had to say. Look, man, the artists don't want people looking at the lights. They want them looking at them. That's that's what this is about, guys. We're you know we're there to enhance their performance. We're not the show. The lights and the sound is not the show. The artist is the show. And you know that to me, you know, no matter what the tools are being used, that whether it's a worship or a corporate show or a rock show, that's what the art of what we do is about. And I, and I, we should never lose sight of that just over the tools we use. That's very well said. Getting there in touch with the art dork side of Robert Mokry and, you know, the aesthetic of it. You know, I hate to say this. This is a kind of a, an admission. I, I get real excited about, like, vintage guitars and amps and microphones and audio gears. I, while I enjoy the lighting business and I find it intellectually uh, stimulating and so forth, I'm not a guy who lays in bed dreaming about lights like a lot of my customers and operators and guys who program do, you know, who are that's really their art, you know. And it's allowed me to be in that business and not like I can't sell any guitars. I'm good at buying guitars, but I, I have to be involved in a business where I'm not emotionally attached to the items, right? Or I'll never sell them. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's true. You know, uh, people go, why aren't you in the guitar business? You know so much about it. I'm like, because I can't sell them, man. <laughs> I can't let them go, you know. Uh, but I can sell lights, you know. Um, I started out working for Richard Bellevue in 1982 soldering crossovers his first products were speakers and he um that was a blackstone right 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 he and Lowell fowler and bob shockerel who's now the sales manager at roby and um uh, actually i think he's the ceo sorry bob i'm i'm giving you short shrift there they had a company that did nightclub installs and even early on richard recognized having proprietary technology let's be real about proprietary technology okay but what it does is it drives the spec to you PRG has proprietary technology because if they get it specified, they're the only guys that got it. Makes sense to me. And, and that's the way it's always been. I don't mean to say that in a derogatory light. In fact, I say it in a respectful uh, light from a business point of view. So, yeah, Richard, uh, his first products were uh, audio products. And so uh, started out doing that. And then uh, I was driving back from a job that uh, Lowell had sent me on, and I stopped at a club in Louisiana that I used to play at. And they said, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm doing these sound and lighting systems. Well, the guys that own the place, unbeknownst to me, called Lowell and bought like a whole sound and lighting system. And he came to me and said, well, you know, we're so packed busy right now. Nobody's got the time to do this. So you're going to do this job. You're going to design it. You're going to go do the whole thing, which was the first time that it ever happened. And uh, so I went and did the whole thing, worked like a dog for six weeks. And and I was pretty, I have to say, those guys uh, paid me very well at the time. You know, I, we were very well compensated and worked really hard. So I come back and turn in my timesheet, and I get this one check in one hand. And then Lowell goes, hey, man, thanks for finding that job. Here's a commission check. And the commission check equaled the six weeks of working 80 hours a week. Nice. And I looked at the two of those and kind of the clouds parted and I went, you know, I'm on the wrong end of this. <laughs> and that's when I kind of became clear that I should probably be involved in in selling this stuff. So I sold studio colors and demoed them. And I was kind of the guy they sent out on real high profile demos where it was uh, us uh, against Very Light or us against whoever it was. And I would go out and uh, uh, meet Willie Williams or or Roy Bennett, or, you know, whoever it was, you know, Abby Rosenholmes. Who I really hope to get on the show sometime soon. Oh, Abby's pretty cool. She'd love doing this. I'm, I'm fairly confident. Um, so Richard was really a stern taskmaster, okay? I'd like to talk about that real quick. Richard was the only person that ever gave me a written questionnaire for a job. Right, I went to went in to talk to him, and he whips out this legal pad and writes down about six or eight questions and hands it to me and says, "Fill the answers in." And these were questions like, "What's AC and DC? What's Ohm's law? What's series parallel?" You know, uh, you know, just real basic electronic stuff. You know, and um, and it really made an impression on me. You know, I like I was thinking, "Wow, this guy is you know he takes what he's doing pretty seriously." 
and he did, you know, and he's still like that to this day, as a matter of fact, very serious and, and focused and passionate about what he does. So well, it's a good way to set the conversation. Oh my God. Yeah. So, uh, and I passed the tests cause he hired me on a Friday and came back in on a Monday. And so I worked for those guys for several years and then, you know, I wanted to get back to music. And so I went and did that for a while and moved out to Los Angeles and worked in a, a, a big recording studio called Westlake audio where Michael Jackson, among other people did his records and, uh, worked as a mastering engineer. I cut those lacquer discs for making records. And, but by this time they had formed uh, high end systems and uh, Bob and, and Don Pugh, my partner now, and a fellow named Richard Steele were out doing sales calls. And we all went out to dinner, and they were like, man, you really got to come back and work with us. We, we, you know, we just got to have you back. And, and we just had a, couple, a kid, and we're about to have another one, and my wife wanted to move back to Texas. And I really didn't want to. I was like fully locked into Hollywood having a great time and hanging out with rock stars. And literally, I'm better now. But um. They flew me out, and and I said, I'll tell you what, if you match what I make in Los Angeles, I'll come here thinking there's no way that will happen. And about 10 minutes later, they came back and said, when can you be here? And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, and we were, it was, and I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm super grateful for, you know, what we have and being in this business has been great to me, you know, and I love the people in it. Okay. I mean, that, that's my favorite thing about the entertainment business is the people. Okay, a personal relationship in this business is everything. Uh, okay, here here's a great example. Suzanne Sasek. Suzanne uh, has done, I think, like Rage Against the Machine and and a bunch of of uh, pretty big acts. Suzanne came to Austin to learn how when I was working for High End to learn how to program in Telebeams. I I think it was. Um, and I got asked her, how'd you get into this business? She goes, well, I, I did theater in high school. And I was the, I can't remember what tour she was on, the band. It'll come to me in a minute. But she was the t-shirt girl on the tour. And the lighting guy didn't show up for two days because he was on a drug binge. And Oh, my God. Oh, dude, this, this is rock and roll, my friend. This is, you know. <laughs> there's a whole nother set of stories to that you know our our business has cleaned up a great deal I, you know i i uh <laughs> i i can remember the days of uh well you know it's actually happened to light parts a couple of times where people have sent in consoles and said um you know in that drawer uh i think i might have left something in there oh you know and uh when people would tour you would open up the console and stash your whatever inside it and close it up and ship it ahead, you know? So uh, anyway, so this guy had been out on a bender for a couple of days. Uh, it was Sonic Youth. That was the band. And I guess the guitar player said, hey, Suzanne, didn't you tell me you did lights in high school? And she said, yeah. He, she said, well, can, can you handle this? And she said, yeah, I'll figure it out. And that's how Suzanne Sassick became a lighting designer. Nice. Okay, so again, you know, she knew the artist. He trusted her. I mean, that's how second engineers in recording become recording engineers. Is somebody doesn't wait for show, the two day drug binge, right, or whatever it was. You know, the guy wasn't available. He got called away. He, uh, you know, he died. <laughs> I've actually heard of that happening. Um, and you know, hey, can you step up and finish this? Yes, I can. All right, and that's and that's how they uh, how they advance. So. Going back to all the technology is starting to look the same, okay? I think at this point in time, and there might be some manufacturers that find me at LDI and throttle me, um, a competent artistic lighting designer can take any of the modern tools that are comparable and produce a decent show. Well, speaking of relationships, I feel like that kind of ties into if you have advice for new folks. You and Don really found a niche uh, that needed service with light parts. How could people find a niche like that? What are the tools they can use to find their place? Right off the top, I will share a piece of advice that Richard Bellevue gave me very early on and I think is, is really powerful. And that is, if you don't know more about what you're doing than your customers, you're fundamentally useless to them. Okay. What, in whatever position I'm at, I need to be bringing something to the party. I need to do my homework. In the case at high end, I learned a lot about lighting. I learned, I learned about lighting metrics and how to calculate beam angles and measure lighting fixtures and compare them. And 
you know, I could sit and speak competently with a Jim Moody or a uh, Willie Williams or a Roy Bennett about what these lights could do. And the best thing would be like when they go, really, you can do that? And not in a pompous way, you know, in a useful, you know, I'm trying to help you here to understand what's going on, you know, and bring something to the party. Maintain a good attitude. People say that, you know, just like it's such a rote thing. But the fact of the matter is, whether you work in a recording studio or you're in a band or you are a lighting designer or a sound designer, uh, the ability to get along with people in the entertainment business is paramount. Okay, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of talented people running around uh, that can do this work. I feel like that's never been more true than now. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing is uh, uh, Sonny Sonnenfeld, this old lighting salesman from New York City, also has a saying, nothing ever happens until somebody sells something. There's no shame in promoting yourself and your skills and what you can offer. You know, another great piece of advice, you must be present to win. You got to be there sitting and talking about it and sitting in your house. You're not going to get jobs that way. You're not going to meet girls or guys that way, whatever you're into. You got to get out there and and hawk it and promote yourself, you know? I mean, you know, you don't want to be a pain in the ass. You know, you don't want to be pushy. You don't want to be a jerk. But most people will respond, in my experience, I've never gotten a really good job that was on the market. Does that make any sense? Where I absolutely, like, yeah. Where I like, I put in a resume and I had to compete against a bunch of other people. The person that hired me wanted me, and I did have one job though. I had to kind of force this guy into because he had to fire another guy who was a non-performer, and he really didn't want to do that. And I finally had to call him and go, "Look, man, I'm going to take this other job that I really don't want." This is your last chance. And he was like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, I had to kind of get him off center a little bit. But there's a good example. And that turned out to be great for him, great for the store, great for me. You know, maybe not so good for that guy that they let go, but even maybe for him, you know, you got to be willing to get out there and sell your ideas and sell yourself. And what that'll make you do is refine them. Right. I mean, you know, the rejection is the best thing that can happen to you because it's like product development. You're going to learn what works and what doesn't work real quickly. I mean, one of the great things about Richard was I would go to meetings with some idea and he would rip me into little bits over stuff that I hadn't thought about that I should have thought about. And he taught me how to think. So the next time, man, I'm thinking out every angle. Right. And I would show up. And he'd be like, okay. You know, you can see him trying to find holes, right? And that's what you have to do. And so, again, if you're a young person, just be a font of information and knowledge. You know, you can't know enough about what it is that you do. And if you're an old fart, continue to evolve what it is that you do. Hey, man, just because Don is the world expert on IntelliBeam doesn't really mean much in 2016 now, does it? He's had to evolve and learn about new fixtures and new stuff and get outside of his comfort zone. And I'm picking on Don as an example, but we all, you know, I've had to do that. I've had to learn about business as a business owner. I've had to learn about federal taxes and QuickBooks Enterprise software backups and employment law and all kinds of things that I'm I'm a hippie musician from Cedar Park. You know, we all have to uh, uh, have a real dedication to evolving our skills or we'll be left behind. I mean, that's that's what's going to happen. That's what happens. And then you're sitting around going, hey, God, what happened? And and the other thing is don't be afraid of changes. I mean, when I've been let go from some jobs and marriage and <laughs> a few other things, I was like, oh, my God, it'll never be as good. It'll never be as good. And I've been wrong about that about 95% of the time. Usually I move on to a better job and I'm in a great marriage now. And, you know, it's real easy to get caught up in, oh, my God, it's so terrible, you know. But mm, not not really. Not really. I think change is good and change is scary. That's some, that's some powerful stuff there. Okay, here's another one before, we're, before we sign off here because I'm going to have to head out pretty soon. Oh, yeah, I know. You have to go be a rock star. Yeah, right. Um I think we're in a great business in the outsourced world, okay? In the world of Chinese imports and the global economy and so on and so forth, you can make garments and automobiles and durable goods offshore. But when it comes to culture, 
I think there's going to be a market in that in America for a long time. You know, and that's not something that's going to be mechanized either. Okay, television and video and all this stuff has been around for a long time, but people still want to see live artists. I, I think live entertainment uh, is is kind of a bullish, you know, in in the world economy. Well, Robert, what a way to wrap things up there. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for joining me. I'm flattered. It's it's always interesting to talk about these things and, and think about them and, and get perspective on them again. You know, it's, a, um, it's like teaching guitar. You know, I'm showing somebody this basic thing and it, I, I got to think, you know, you're like, wow, I kind of forgot about that, you know? So yeah, uh, I appreciate you having me on and, and appreciate everybody who supported Light Parts. You know, we're really a, a little family-owned blip of a business down here, and, and our business has been so good to us, you know, the, the lighting business, and we really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you very much. We have a great recording session. I will. You have a lovely evening up there in New York and try not to freeze your butt off too bad. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading and have a good show. It's